Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This On Air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full-service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Today we're talking with attorney Grace Rossler about life insurance and the role life insurance plays in divorce. Grace is a family law attorney in the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. Welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell, Grace, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Howard. It's always a pleasure. Well, thanks so much. So first question, very simple. Life insurance. What is it for? Well, you know, life insurance is a mechanism. Life insurance basically makes sure that a surviving spouse and surviving children are financially protected in the event of a family member's untimely death or timely death to to purchase a life insurance policy. A person pays yearly or monthly premium uh, to that policy, and in turn, the policy will pay out a certain amount of money when the insured person dies. So when the insured person is alive, that life insurance policy may have a cash value uh, that the insured person can borrow against. In that case, it is an asset for that person. Um, but really, the importance of the life insurance policy comes at the end when the insured person dies. And how does life insurance come up in divorce specifically? Yeah, you know, it comes up in a couple of ways. Um, sometimes, as I mentioned before, if it does have a cash value associated with it, generally with a whole life insurance policy. Um, that cash value is considered an asset in the divorce, and you have to make sure that you disclose that asset on your financial statement. But the most common way that life insurance comes up in a divorce is when the court actually requires it. The court may require parties who have an obligation to pay, let's say, child support or alimony or even uh, a child's college educational expenses um, to purchase a life insurance policy. Now, why would the court require life insurance? Well, life insurance is a form of protection. Think of it as the backup plan in the event something happens to the person that's supposed to be paying these kind of supports. If that person dies before his or her support payments are supposed to end, the life insurance money kind of makes up for what the person paying would have paid had he or she lived through the duration of the support order. Can you give us some concrete examples, Grace, of this? Yeah, sure. You know, I think a lot of people think of child support first. So I'll give you a child support example. The length of a child support obligation depends on the age of the child at the time of the divorce. So let's say you have a child who's three when his parents get divorced that child support obligation could last up to another 20 years under the Massachusetts child support guidelines. If the child support order is about $500 a week, let's say, that comes out to $26,000 per year. The course of 20 years, the total value of that support order is $520,000 tax-free. That's a lot of money. (laughs) Um, So if you're the parent, receiving that support, that $520,000 over the 20-year period, you want to make sure that you still receive those tax-free dollars for the benefit of your child, regardless of what happens to the other parent. So you get a life insurance policy with a death benefit of maybe 
$500,000 so that if the parent paying the child support dies maybe three or four years after the divorce, your child is still going to get the money that was intended for the child that, that the parent was going to be paying during that whole 20-year period. I can give you another example, alimony. Sure. You know, a lot of people don't think that alimony has to be secured, but again, this is about duration. So the length of an alimony obligation depends generally on the length of a marriage. So if the parties have been married for 14 years, under the Massachusetts Alimony Reform Act, alimony continues for about nine and a half years, 10 years. If the support is, let's say, $1,000 per week, that comes to $52,000 a year for 10 years. So over the course of 10 years, again, that adds up to $520,000, a lot of money. If you are the spouse who's receiving those benefits and relying on that kind of support, you make sure that you get it. You know, we like to assume that the person paying in both scenarios here will live through the entire time that he would be required to pay. But what if something happens to that parent or the ex-spouse? That person who is relying on the ex-partner's support will probably need those funds still. So this is a good way to secure that obligation. In all the years of thinking about this and um, talking with folks about family law and about settlements and about money, I'm not sure I ever really thought about the role that life insurance plays. And it seems like really what you're saying is it plays a key role in many different aspects. It really does. Like I said, it's, you know, this is somewhat of a business transaction. You're hedging your bets that this person will continue to pay, but you really do need a backup plan. And a lot of the times the court's going to make you get one. So how do you determine how much life insurance to get, Grace? You know, the short answer is you should try to calculate the total value of whatever the existing support obligation is for the required period of time. So like I said, if an order, you know, under my child support uh, example there, if an order is $500 a week, that comes to $26,000 a year. You can estimate the length of time between the child being age three to approximately 23, which is when child support ends in Massachusetts. That's 20 years. So you're multiplying the 26,000 per year times 20 years to get to the 520. Um, that's usually a good place to start. Some people do ballpark numbers, good round numbers, you know, a $500,000 policy, a $600,000 policy, something like that. And, you know, usually you can work out something from there that makes sense for the parties. And who should be named the listed beneficiary of the policy? So the beneficiary is the person who will inevitably get the money when the insured person dies. Generally, that is the ex-spouse who is the listed beneficiary, so the money will come directly to him or her. I also like to write into my agreements that the life insurance is held, quote, for the benefit for the child. Um, so that you can list the parent's name, but that that parent is holding it for the benefit of a child. So that it makes it very clear that the intention of both parties is that whatever money you receive from a life insurance policy is really supposed to be for the benefit of the child, not the parent. This makes a lot of sense. Now, who pays for the life insurance policy? <laughs> you know, it, you know, it should be obviously the person who needs the policy. 
and it usually is, but sometimes the person who would get the money in the end is actually the one paying for the policy to make sure that policy is in place. Now, why would the other spouse pay for it? It, You know, ex-spouses don't always trust each other. It's just the way that it is. You've been through a divorce. You, you've spent a lot of money. Or you're going to spend a lot of money. And, you know, if the ex-spouse really wants to make sure that this policy is in place for themselves or for the benefit of the children, you know, the best way to do that is to be the one who pays for it. Absolutely. Now, do you need a new life insurance policy to do this? Not necessarily. I think the best thing to do is first look to see if the person who has to get the policy um, has some form of life insurance already. Maybe they have a policy through their employment, um, like an employer sponsored life insurance. Sometimes that's twice the level of salary. So if you make 100000 you might have 200000 already covered under your own employment contract. Um, so always make sure that there's not something already out there in terms of the employer-sponsored life insurance. Um, maybe you still have that life insurance policy through your employment, but it's just not enough to cover what you need. So as we said, going back to my child support, Uh, order there of $520,000 for a total value, you know, maybe you need to get another $300,000 of a private life insurance policy that's separate and apart from the employer side. Now, can anyone get life insurance? Not always. Um, I do recommend working with an insurance broker. Uh, In some instances, pre-existing conditions can prevent coverage altogether. Cancers, diagnoses for mental health issues, I think it'll be really interesting to see if life insurance companies deem COVID-19 as a pre-existing condition, if you've had it before, um, which we can talk about a little later, might be a reason why people want to qualify now or try to try to get the, um, the medical exam now rather than later um, if there's a predicted spike upcoming. But I think that not everyone can get life insurance and you have to be prepared for that too. We're talking with attorney Grace Rossler from the firm of Myrick O'Connell. She practices family law there. And we're talking about the importance and relevance of life insurance in a divorce proceeding or matter. Grace, what if a person cannot qualify for life insurance? Yeah, you know, and as I said, it does happen. Um, parties still need a backup plan. So the court may require some alternate form. Of plan. Uh, for example, I have made ex-spouses name their spouse or their children as beneficiary to a retirement account or another asset. For example, uh, a retirement account, a um, brokerage account, even sometimes being taking a mortgage on a piece of property that's available to them. The goal here is always to have the backup plan. Um, And so even if you can't qualify for life insurance, there's something else that you can um, that you can name your, you know, the surviving spouse as the beneficiary of an asset. So how about this? So you have the life insurance policy written, Grace, into the agreement and you get divorced. So now what? Yeah, so it's interesting, this part. In a lot of agreements, I like to add a requirement that the parties have to exchange proof of life insurance existence every year. 
um, and that the person that is insured has a proactive duty to give the other person the policy. That being said, it's actually kind of ironic. The person who is the beneficiary actually has a lot more responsibility in this area. So I always say that it should be the beneficiary who is checking in on the status of this life insurance policy at least every year. And the way to do that is to reach out to your ex-spouse and ask for documentation. You are checking to see the life insurance policy is still in place, that the correct beneficiaries are listed, and that the ex-spouse has not taken any loans against the life insurance policy because you might have a life insurance policy with a death benefit of 520000 but maybe they took a $100,000 loan out of that. Well, then you're not going to, you know, you're going to be short 100000 by the time that that person dies. So you want to make sure that there are no loans against that policy. So what happens, Grace, let's say four years down the line, if you ask for the proof of life insurance policy documents and your ex-spouse doesn't have the policy in place? I think that you should file a contempt immediately. It is a clear violation of a court order if it's part of your judgment of divorce or a separation agreement that was incorporated into your judgment of divorce. And what's the cost of that, of bringing a contempt proceeding? You know, there's no filing fee for a contempt. There's just a $5 charge for the summons to be issued. And then you serve that summons by constable to the opposing party. It's, you know, service by summons is somewhere between $50 and $100. So the whole process is not that expensive. And what generally happens at a contempt hearing? You know, at a contempt hearing where you're alleging there's no policy in place and there should be, a judge is probably going to find that person in contempt and give them some period of time, maybe 30 days or 60 days to show proof that they did get a new policy. And likely they will, the judge will have a status date or a return date um, for the party so that you know, everyone can come back into court and say, yes, he got a policy, here it is, or no, there is no policy, you know, we're going to fine him, we're going to issue attorney's fees, we're going to see what else we can do to, to get that backup plan in place. So now you know, I know you know, I think we all know, <laughs> that most people like to avoid court, especially after a messy divorce. Do you think it's worth it to file a contempt proceeding? Absolutely. You know, spending a hundred bucks to serve a complaint and spending, you know, half a day in court to make sure that that insurance policy is in place is really well worth it when you consider that you could be missing out on a $300,000 to a $500,000 life insurance proceeds. I'll give you an example. I filed a contempt on behalf of one of my clients Her daughter was only four years old at the time, and the dad was supposed to have a life insurance policy for her benefit because he was paying child support. We asked him for proof of the life insurance policy by email, and he did not respond. We gave him a few chances, and when we got no response still, we filed a contempt. At the contempt hearing, he admitted to the judge that he had let his life insurance policy lapse and that he had no life insurance policy for the benefit of his daughter. The judge was very upset. She ordered him to get a new life insurance policy within 30 days. And just as I said before, it did get that life insurance policy 
we could avoid a second court hearing or a status conference. He did get a new life insurance policy. He named his daughter as the beneficiary. Actually, he named the mother for the benefit of the daughter as the beneficiary. And we received all the paperwork, all the documentation. That's always what you want. And the crazy part about this is not even a year later, dad was diagnosed with a terminal illness and he passed away very suddenly. He was 43 years old. Hmm. My client's daughter was only five at the time. She, my client, received those life insurance proceeds of $300,000 from the life insurance policy. And I'd like to say it was a life insurance policy that would not have been in place, would not have existed if we had not gone to court and filed that contempt. And my client was able to invest those funds and put them away for college for her daughter. And that's where they're sitting right now. You know, so it's, it's, it's a story about the importance of checking up on those policies and then acting on it if there is no policy in place. It's just very important. Makes perfect sense. Now, what happens, Grace, if you don't have life insurance policy in place at the time of your death? You'd like to think it doesn't happen, but it happens. And if it does happen where there is no life insurance policy at the time that the person dies, the beneficiary can sue the ex-spouse's estate for the amount that he or she should have gotten in the life insurance proceeds. This is a separate action in probate and family court. It's called a complaint and equity. Um, I've actually done several of them. They're really interesting. Um, But you can. You can go after the money. There's a danger here, though, and that is, again, why you don't necessarily want to wait to find out if there's no life insurance. And that is, there could be nothing in the estate. If the person dies, they might have a ton of debt. They could owe taxes. They might have a house that's underwater. There might not be anything for you to grab, per se, which is why having that life insurance policy in place is so critical. I want to add one more thing because there are situations where there's a life insurance policy that exists. That's great. Okay, step one. (laughs) But the wrong person is listed as the beneficiary. And what I mean by that is, let's say that person that was supposed to have the life insurance for the benefit of their ex-spouse, right, they got remarried and the new spouse is listed as the beneficiary. In that situation, you again have to sue the new spouse and you have to sue the life insurance company to make sure that they do not give the money over to the new spouse because it's very difficult to get the money back once it's been distributed. So those are kind of two areas. Both of them are complaints and equity, the two areas where you might have to do some additional litigation on the back end if you don't go forward on checking whether or not the life insurance policy is in effect while the person is alive. Lots of things to think about in this area. One more thing, Grace. As we all know, a lot of things have changed since COVID-19. What impact do you think COVID-19 will have on insurance availability? For life insurance, I would think that a positive COVID test at the time of applying for the life insurance policy would result in automatic denial. And then you'd have to go to that kind of alternative backup plan that we're talking about where you want to name someone as a beneficiary of other assets. But 
we don't know as much right now about what the effects of COVID are long term on someone that's had it. But probably for right now, if you already had COVID and you recovered, unless you had some permanent damage, it likely would not be deemed material to getting the life insurance. But the one thing you don't want to do is shade the truth on this. You have to remember that the life insurance companies, they look at what you have disclosed on your questionnaires. And if you said, you know, you didn't have COVID and it turns out you did, that they, they will use that against you and you could potentially be denied the life insurance proceeds for not telling truth on your application. So I would ask you, Grace, just as a wrap-up, any last tips for someone who's applying for life insurance? Just answer the questions honestly. If you're positive for COVID-19 and you recover, you're likely in the clear. But be careful about applying for life insurance first and then getting tested to find out that you have COVID. Again, I think the bottom line is just be very straightforward with your answers when you're applying and um, be careful about the timing when you're applying. And just know also that if life insurance, for whatever reason, isn't available to you, maybe it is too cost prohibitive because of medical issues that you have, for example, there's another backup plan. There's always another backup plan. And the entire policy behind having a backup plan is to ensure that a child that is supposed to get this money or an ex-spouse who's supposed to get this money still can get this money, even if something happens to you. So I think that's the the best advice that I can give, you know, and it is a very interesting topic. And certainly, you know, I can take questions on it whenever. So it's just, it's very interesting. And a lot of people don't know uh, what large role it plays in divorce and divorce settlement. Yeah, I don't think most people realize this. And and we've been talking with Grace Russler, a family law attorney with Myrick O'Connell, with offices in Worcester, Boston, and Westboro. Really appreciate your time on on air with Myrick O'Connell today. Grace, how can folks contact you with questions or concerns about this or any other family law matter? You can give me a call. My number is 617-391-2160. Or you can email me, and that's G-R-O-E-S-S-L-E-R at MyrickOConnell.com. And that, by the way, is the website for Myrick O'Connell to find out how all the attorneys at the firm can help you with your business, personal, legal needs, MyrickOConnell.com. Thanks so much, Grace, again for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I hope you learned something, Howard. I definitely, oh, I think you know I did, and hopefully our listeners did as well. On behalf of attorney Grace Russler and Myrick O'Connell, I'm Howard Kaplan. Thanks for joining us, and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rule of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court.